1 Peter 1, Isaiah 59. As we begin this Advent season, we are going to uh, be spending our time, our Sundays, focusing on some of the prophetic voices uh, that foretold the coming of the Messiah. Uh, the familiar ones to us are ones that were already even read this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, uh, that a virgin would conceive. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, that he'll be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Uh, Micah 5.2, that names the town of Bethlehem as the place where that hope, that Messiah would be born. But so much, so much of the Old Testament looks forward uh, to the coming of the Messiah. In fact, uh, consider this truth from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 and 12. Let's read those. It says this, Concerning this salvation, Peter writes, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I just think that's such a beautiful passage as we now look back into those prophets. These were prophets who were serving not themselves, but they were serving us with their prophetic declarations regarding the Messiah. And so for the next two weeks, we are going uh, to look at Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 60. Isaiah is a prophet in Judah, that is the, the southern kingdom of Israel, around 700 B.C., uh, Yahweh has much to share through the prophet Isaiah. It is an incredible uh, collection of prophecies. And in chapter 42, his, his uh, tone and the, 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 the shift happens in the book where he begins to talk about a servant, uppercase S, a servant, that is the title, who will become this major theme throughout the remainder of his book. The servant, he writes, will suffer. The servant will deliver Israel. And uh, spoiler alert here, the servant is the Messiah, the servant is Jesus. And so without further delay, would you follow along as I read Isaiah 59? We're just going to read the first eight verses to get us started this morning. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongues mutter wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes in law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs die, and the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men uh, will not cover themselves with what they make. Their words are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands, their feet run to evil, and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. 
They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So if you hadn't read Isaiah 59, now you know what Tori was talking about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray now for your gracious blessing. You promise that your word does not return void. And Lord, as we, we think about this passage that Isaiah wrote 2,700 years ago, and how many sets of ears have heard it? And how many sets of eyes have looked upon these very words? And God, you have used it in countless lives to point us to the Messiah, to point us to our need for the Messiah. Oh, I pray today, Spirit, that you would just flood our hearts with hope, the hope that only Jesus can bring to a sinful soul. Help us now to be attentive to the truth, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening line, we are met with a counter-argument to a complaint that Israel has been directing towards Yahweh. What is their complaint? Why won't you intervene? Why won't you save us? Why, why won't you keep the promises that you have made to us, Yahweh? This has been their complaint since the Exodus. Over and over, they would question the faithfulness. They would question the goodness of Yahweh. And so the prophecy begins, Behold, Yahweh speaking, listen to me. Yahweh's hand is not shortened so that it cannot save. Or his ear dull so that he cannot hear. Now, before we move on, let's have a moment of honesty here. We too offer these complaints and doubts up to God on the daily. We too with regularity question whether He hears us. We too question whether He truly cares for us as we move through the moments and the seasons of life. And we have to remember that, that our God's hand is not shortened. We have to remember that our God's ear is not dull. He hears what we are dealing with. John Owen, in his book, The Communion with God, he writes this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. Let me read that one more time. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. He does love you. Now let's see what Yahweh has to say about their situation. Notice verse 2. But your iniquities, he says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem, my dear children, is your sin. Isaiah prophesies. Your sin has caused a separation. And then just in case Israel would argue, what sin? Name it. Show us. Yahweh offers them an example list. By the way, what Isaiah describes here is universal in its nature. It's not just simply pigeonholed to Israel during this season. This is the universal sins of humanity. And he says this, their hands are defiled with blood and their fingers with iniquity. Now there's something, there's something poetic and all-encompassing about the way Yahweh describes their hands being with blood and then all the way to their fingers. 
Everything about them is covered in this violence and this anger. Their lips have spoken lies and their tongues have muttered wickedness. No one enters the suit justly, he writes. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies, they conceive mischief, and they give birth to iniquity. We are liars. We are slanderers. We are gossips. We unleash the tongues and the fire spreads and it consumes. Out of the same mouth we offer praise to God and curses to men, James writes. Here in Isaiah 59, the prophet uses the image of conception and birth to describe their evil. Both of those usually describe something joyful, right? When we think of birth, we think of new life, and it's, it's supposed to fill us with joy, but here it describes the birth of sin and the birth of death and devastation that it will cause. Things seem upside down for Israel. They hatch adder's eggs, weave the spider's web, and from them the crushed viper is hatched. The webs will not serve as clothing Again, eggs and webs can be useful, but not these eggs. You crack this egg open and a snake's going to come out and bite you with its poison. The spider's web will be of no use. Man's sinful actions, what is described as perverted all of life, all of creation, is now in ruin because of the sin of man. Their works are works of iniquity. Deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity and sin, desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their path. They've made the roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Ultimately, the issue here is a perversion of justice. Justice itself is perverted, and when justice itself is perverted, there is no turning back. There's no redesign of that. There's no reform of that. The only hope is to replace, replace what's in place. And that's what Yahweh has been preaching in these final chapters of Isaiah. Replacement is necessary. Replacement is coming. Sinful deeds have consequences, and that's what Isaiah describes in the next section, verses 9 through 15. And it's helpful for us as we consider these verses. These are, these are verses that are confessional for Isaiah. Israel's beginning to come to the same conclusions that Isaiah has in recognizing uh, that, that without Yahweh and apart from Yahweh, they've moved into paths of destruction. Considering the promises Yahweh has made to Israel, promises of prosperity and promises of peace and, and victory, Israel's beginning to recognize there's this disconnect. We don't, we don't, we're not experiencing that prosperity. We're not experiencing that peace. Why is this? What they see is justice stands at a distance. What they see is that righteousness, well, righteousness, it's nowhere to be found in their midst. It's not in their communities. It's not in their uh, country. One of those promises Yahweh makes was back in Isaiah 59. Verse 9 through 12, in verse 10, he promises that there would be light. But here in 59, verse 9, all they know is what? He says, all you know is darkness. Why? Because of their sin, they walk in gloom. Because of their sin, they're left, he describes, blind. Or, or worse, he says, people with no eyes at all. 
Because of sin, they're left as dead men. What's Isaiah getting at in these verses? He's getting at the depravity of man, the hopelessness of man. Again, Israel isn't in need of some repair. It isn't a situation that you just you slap a new coat of paint on this. They aren't in a position that they can, they can pull themselves up from their bootstraps and get their act together. There's no work that they can do to save themselves from the sin that they've chosen. And it's only when we come to this point. It's only when we come to this point of hopeless devastation that Jesus Christ truly makes sense. Only when we realize that hope and salvation must come to us and not from us will we truly understand Jesus. Isaiah goes on to describe their misery and the hopelessness of their sin. He says, we growl like bears. We moan like doves. All of this because justice is nowhere to be found. Note the language in here. There's a language of, of longing and, and waiting. We look around and we know that the world is not supposed to be like this. This was not the intention. This is not what a good God creates. This is the devastation of sin. All creation groans and we lament. And isn't the misery of man all around us? I mean, we feel it on the daily in our own soul as we talk to others, as we watch what's happening around the world on the news, the misery of man is on full display. What we do see is transgressions piled up before God, sin piled up. There it sits, testifying against us. It mocks us. It condemns us. Notice the description in verse 13. It says, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. So again, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Notice, here's what Oswald writes. Justice knocks at the gate and it's turned away. Righteousness is standing far away and it does not even try to enter. In the central square where the city's business is done, truth has fallen down and honesty cannot even make an appearance. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. To even try to do what's right is dangerous. To try to act in righteousness is dangerous. This so describes our present age, an age where truth is perverted. I mentioned at the forefront of the sermon that what Isaiah describes here is universal. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. Man exchanges the truth of God for a lie. We too live in an age where justice, righteousness, and truth are not allowed to enter. Politicians, news media can blatantly lie. And nobody seems to care. The truth is pragmatically sacrificed for some more noble means as if there is something more noble than truth. Even the most obvious of truths are dismissed. For example, there are two genders. 
Science has known this for years, but now science has unhitched itself from observable facts and gone mad. My heart breaks for those who are confused about their gender and have no one to lovingly and gently and truthfully share with them that they are who God has made them to be, male or female. And as it says, when anyone tries to depart from the evil or speak what is true, what happens? They become the prey. Satan, the roaring lion, is waiting to pounce. The world will hate you for pointing out their sin. The world will even hate you for pointing out their misery. They don't want to hear about it. It's like a few weeks back when Faith said, hey, how's your diet going? Oh, I hated her for asking that question. <laughs> right? The world doesn't want to hear. They don't want truth. They don't want to have those conversations. And because of our affair with sin and idols, I mean, we're miserable a lot of the time. I don't want to just stand up here in a, in a bully pulpit sense and pick on politicians and gender identity warriors. Because friends, we, we are angry. We are impatient. We are divisive. We are ungrateful. We are anxious. We are selfish. We are perverse. We are faithless. We are rebellious. We are sinners. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So what are we to do? Notice verse 15, about halfway through. The Lord sees our condition and is displeased because there's no righteousness. Our hope begins with these words. He saw. He saw. God has not removed himself. The, the chapter opens with that assumption, right? Where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? But, but what we see, the truth is God doesn't remove himself. We, by our sin, remove ourselves from God. We are blind. He is not. We are insensitive. He is not. He hears. But what is it that God sees? Verse 15 concludes that he sees there is no justice. God is appalled at the injustice that he sees in the world. And it's not because injustice is some pet peeve that he has. No, injustice is incompatible with his character. Injustice destroys the creation and the people that he loves. And so he hates it. He despises it. But because our God is also full of compassion... He also sees this in verse 16, that there's no one to intercede. He saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no one to intercede on behalf of humanity. When Sodom was condemned, Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom. And he pleaded with Yahweh, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare it? Yes. 40, 30. 
Moses multiple times in the wilderness interceded on behalf of Israel. I think of the, the one instance that stands out of my mind the most is when they're, they're being consumed by the plague and they're dying and it's spreading quickly amongst them. What does Moses do? He runs into the middle of them, putting himself in a position of danger and he begins to plead with Yahweh to show mercy. Moses interceded. And so now in their time of greatest need, who would intercede? Moses and Abraham, they were imperfect intercessors and they're both dead. They failed themselves. They needed intercession. Neither were a match for the sin and injustice that plagues Israel and all of humanity. So God rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. Notice verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation and righteousness upheld him. I'll do it myself. God must intervene on behalf of man, and he does. As we said earlier, this isn't a repair job that requires an extra coat of paint. For those of you familiar with Ephesians 6, something that Chuck preached on just a few weeks ago, we recognize that Paul gets his inspiration regarding the armor of God from right here in verse 17 where it says that he, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on the helmet of salvation on his head and put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And so what does this mean? This means that God himself went to battle against sin. God himself went to war on our behalf. No weapons are mentioned because God doesn't need weapons to save his people from sin. His comments on vengeance I found interesting. They continue on into verse 18. But the question is, what, what, is, what is God avenging? One commentator answers it this way, all all that God's enemy, sin, has done to creation will be richly repaid. Nothing will be left unrequited. When the scripture promises that he is making all things new, it means he will set everything right again. And everything that sin has destroyed, even in your own life, you think about your own experiences the way your own sin has destroyed you and the way your own sin has destroyed others or the way others' sin has affected you and caused destruction in your life, all of it will be made right. He will restore. And as a result of His salvation, Yahweh's glory will be known to all. Notice verse 19. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. But all of this still begs the question, how? How? How will Yahweh save? How will Yahweh intervene? How will Yahweh make all things new again? 
Notice verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. A redeemer will come to Zion. In the context, we understand this redeemer will redeem mankind from their sin. This redeemer will save men from the power, the the plague, and the punishment of sin. This redeemer will restore, will recreate all that sin has destroyed. This redeemer is Israel's hope. This redeemer is our hope, our only hope. And for this redeemer, Israel would wait. Hoping Longing, praying, looking, singing songs like, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And then one day, there in the Jordan River, a madman of sorts was baptizing converts. This madman's message and mission were simple and clear. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His job was to lower the hills and to raise the valleys and make straight a path for the Redeemer who would come, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who would come to take away the sins of the world. The Redeemer that would come to Zion. And as John the Baptist was busy about his work on that day, he saw Jesus and he made that astonishing claim. Behold. Behold. Look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Or you could say, behold the Lamb of God who redeems. John knew him. I am so grateful to know him. Do you know him? Do you know this Lamb of God who takes away the sin? The sin of the world, your sin. Do you know this Redeemer who has come? Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets themselves long to see and long to know in their own day, in their own lifetime. Two things are clear from Isaiah 59. One is this. We need an intercessor. We cannot intercede on our behalf. What would we have to offer? More sin? More pride? More arrogance? We need an intercessor. And here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verse 12. It'll be on the screen behind me. Therefore, I will divide him, that is this servant who would suffer, I will divide this servant a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sins of many 
and makes intercessors, an intercession for the transgressors. He's doing that right now. As we imperfect people sit here and sing our praises to God, Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Not only do we need an intercessor, but we need a redeemer. Here's what Titus had to say about this. Well, Paul had to say to Titus about this. We are waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul would write to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeems us. And then in Galatians chapter four, we find this incredible truth. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the fullness of time, a Redeemer came to Zion. This is what Advent or the Christmas season is all about. God sending forth His Son to redeem us because His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. And His ears are not so dull that they cannot hear our miserable cries. In our great need, God's arm has brought forth salvation. In our great need, the Redeemer, Jesus, has come. Jesus is our hope. How look to Him. Look to Him. Look to Him today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me if you would.